Welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. This is Alia. And Ellie. This is Nadia. And we have a very special guest today. Um, can you introduce yourself and then also share whatever you are comfortable with about your upbringing, um, also your career? We would love to hear about the development of that and how you ended up where you are right now. Yeah. Hi, um, my, my name is Ilyas Jahshan. I am a Palestinian Lebanese journalist and writer. As you can tell, probably tell by my accent, I was born and raised in Australia, in Sydney. But, um, and I lived there for the first 30 years of my life. And now I've been living in London for the past six years in the UK. My father's Palestinian and my mum's Lebanese, uh, but they met in Australia. And I grew up in a working class family, but I always had a bit of a, a, a love for reading and writing from a very young age. In many ways, I grew up in that almost typical uh, immigrant family where education, the value of education was really placed, was really at the forefront in my, in my, um, in my in my early years as a child and teenager, my parents saw that I had exceptional skills, I guess, <laughs> and really and really helped nurture that. And um, they, they encouraged me to pursue a, a career in journalism and writing. But, I mean, I had first, of course, I was that typical guy that I wanted to, probably wanted to be an author. That was my first full-time job. My parents were like, have a backup just in case. Um, so, you know, <laughs> have some in- steady income, then you can do what you want. So and I, I, I guess that, that's from the working class thing as well. Like we, we didn't have that financial means for me to just pursue that career, take that risk. And I grew up in a, in Western Sydney, which is, I mean, I sometimes joke that Sydney is like the D-born of the Southern Hemisphere. Oh. Because, I mean, it's, it's not like 60% or 80% out yeah. of like D-born itself, but there is a very, very visible Lebanese community in Sydney, in Western Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, we've got we've got lots of other uh, communities there as well, namely Iraqis um, and Palestinians and Egyptians. Um, but the Lebanese, out of the Arab Australians, Lebanese make up the vast majority. So I, I just grew up in a part of Western Sydney that was like almost like the capital of Arab Australia. <laughs> so I, I've, I've been very much embedded in the Arab Australian community for a long time. I grew up with it with my family, and, and we went to a high school that had a lot of. Um, Lebanese and Arab Australians as well. So I guess this, this whole thing about being Arab in Australia in the, in the diaspora, third culture kid, whatever you want to call it, has been mm-hmm. part of my life for since day dot, really. I've been, it's it's not, not something I've been able to escape. And I didn't realise that until I moved to London. I, I just realised I didn't have that community that I, did, that I had back in Sydney. I've now found it, and I'm very lucky that I've now found it. And I'm, I've now found that community, which I'm really, really uh, lucky to be able to say, uh, say that. But... um. At the same time, like I feel like moving to London has sort of opened up doors and being able to connect with so many other people around the world, namely, namely through online. I'm a very online person. And even my current day job now, I'm the social media editor for the New Arab. So I'm always online by seven days a week anyway. So yeah, I guess it just it's helped me reach out to other people and realize that the Arab diaspora, even the people in the Arab world itself, we have so much in common um, and yet we're so diverse and so different. And I feel like we celebrate our diversity really well um and we uh always have each other in, in have each other's back that's my personal experience obviously i mean everyone's got different experiences i realize i'm going off on a tangent sorry <laughs> um that's what we do here we we love tangents yeah so i mean i, I was the first oh, I was also the first one in my family to go to university in my immediate family mm-hmm. to go to university of the, i'm the youngest of four and, and i guess that just goes back to coming from that typical immigrant background when me going to university was such a big deal for my parents who never had that opportunity you know especially with my father losing everything after 1948 when he was 10 years old and my mum growing up in a very poor family in northern Tripoli which is still the poorest city in Lebanon today it was poor back in the 60s and 70s as well um so having that that nexus I guess and just sort of like me 
in some ways overcoming i don't want to say overcoming that because it, we shouldn't have to feel like we have to overcome these things right we should there should be equity with these sorts of things so i guess it was a really big deal for my parents and so i, I mean i started off with my career with um a bit ashamed to say but uh with, with rupert murdoch i was in rupert, I was in rupert murdoch news corp no. australia um yeah controversial <laughs> um but we, i was with his, we do um, what we have to like when we're yeah, and you know what? Like Rupert Murdoch owns, I think to this day, still owns about two thirds or maybe three quarters of print media in Australia. Australian media is like not diverse at all in, in terms of ownership and also in terms of the journals that actually work there. But that's another discussion for another time. It's worse than US, it's worse than UK. We'll talk about Australia's racism another day. I started my career in, in Murdoch's Suburban Newspapers Network. So it wasn't, wasn't any of the major tabloid trashy papers. Then I sort of worked in several newspapers in the suburban areas of Sydney. The last paper I worked at was based Funny enough, was in the area that I grew up in, in Parramatta. I just so happened to be the, by pure accident, just ha be, happened to be the first journal in, the, in that newspaper's history to be reporting on queer issues in the local area. And it probably helped that I had an editor at the time who was really just didn't care, who was really happy to do these sorts of stories. But like back in the in, back in the day, in the mid 2000 mid 2010, like it was a bit bit of a pushy thing because living in the suburbs in Sydney is considered being the family haven, the the family unit, not so much, you know, the diversity of sexu uh, sexuality or anything like that. Uh, so the fact that I was doing, and also I was, I was there just when the whole same-sex marriage debate was really starting to kick off. Kick off. So there were two big things that happened. And I'm, I'll, I'll tell you why I'm telling, telling this in a, in a few minutes, but one thing was my local MP, um, she was, you know, an, an atheist, progressive, left-wing uh, minister. Um, in the Labour Party, she voted no for the same-sex marriage vote in, at the time. Um, so I pitched the idea to my editor, and my editor was like, "Go, like, go and go have an interview with her, with her and try and sort of get her to say why she voted no." And I just happened to be like the first journo in the area who managed to get a reason out of her, and she had a really stupid reason, like, "Oh, I don't want to, don't want to, don't want to upset my voters and constituents, mm -hmm. even though it was a conscious vote, not by the." It, yeah, it's a bit complicated how Australia is. Everything thing. you probably expected to hear. Yeah, and then the, and then the next time oh, they had a vote, she loud. voted yes. So I, think she, I just yeah. shamed her in that day, in that sense. <laughs> and another sense, that other another big story that happened was uh, there was like a, the the local area had its first Pride event for the first time ever. It was run by a local queer group. It was just a few stalls along the river, with maybe maximum ten stalls. And there was a bit of miscommunication. Apparently, the mayor of the local area got really angry. This mayor, but mind you, was also Lebanese Australian, but very conservative. He was on the right wing. He got he got really upset about it, and he came and he sort of allegedly told some council staff to go in and tell everyone to shut the stores down and whatnot. So I just did a random story on that, and it just went gangbusters, went all over national media, it went on TV. I didn't go on TV with a story. I was the first one to report on that. And then shortly after that, I think that was all those two stories happened in the space of two or three months. And shortly after that, I just got tapped on the shoulder and became the editor of Star Observer, which was um, or is uh, Australia's longest running queer media outlet. And I was there for two and a half, I was editor of that for two and a half years. And I was like the first editor from a uh, non-English speaking background in the publications history. I think I'm still am. And it's one of the oldest, it's the oldest one in Australia. I think there's only very, there's very few around the world that's older than the Star Observer. I think Advocate in America is a bit older than the Star Observer. Um, there's not many others in the English language wo uh, world at least. Uh, so the fact that Star Observer has been around for 40 plus years and I'm still the only one in this history, even though Australia is a very multicultural country, 
I'm the only one in situ come from non English speaking background, kind of, kind of quite telling. And I, I, that 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 the impact of that also didn't hit me until I left and to moved to London. Um, I didn't move to London for any reason really at the time. I've been like, oh, I've got to get my working holiday visa now before I turn thirty because the age cut off. So I've got to do it now before I turn thirty-one. Sorry. Oh, I didn't but know I that. I didn't know that rule. Okay. Yeah, it's like a Commonwealth. Yeah. It's like a Commonwealth countries arrangement between Australia, UK, New Zealand. Interesting. I think Canada's part of the agreement as well. I think that's probably the only benefit of being part of the Commonwealth. To be fair, <laughs> um, other than that, I'm full Republican. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I had been to London before, and I absolutely loved the city, and I just feel like it was. I'm a big city person. I feel like London's way more diverse than Sydney. It's sort of the center of the world. And as much as I love Sydney, as much as I love my family there, I just felt like you know. It's very parochial. Everyone just cares about their own backyard. Then they're just like, mm, you know, there's more to the world than just our little corner of the Pacific, you know. So yeah, and I would really. And, and so when I moved to London, or I had all these epiphanies. I'm like, oh my god, wow! I just, I was really like playing the game by being in Murdoch for five, working for Murdoch for five years, and being the first and still the only editor of Stars of non English speaking background. Like, and I, and I'm just, and looking at British media and even the British media here when they're talking about lack of diversity of journals and stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at Australian media, I'm like, oh guys, you guys are a little what much better than Australian media. You want me to show you the example we've got? Like I can't I can't even point to an indigenous uh news journalist on TV at the moment. Like, come on. In some ways like moving to London, like that distance kind of helped radicalize a lot of my, my politics so yeah i've definitely gone way off track i'm really sorry no this is all great yeah. yeah so like the chaos that you've navigated in your careers is like <laughs> uh, astounding <laughs> astounding but also but, almost like, a little impressive. bit typical yeah yeah um it's like you went rogue. Eventually, you were like, "I'm just gonna go rogue." <laughs> I did, yeah, it's not like it's not like an intentional thought. I'm gonna go rogue. My my first my first thought was like, "I'm gonna go to London and give and you know have a go at trying to crack, crack, get get my foot in the door in the media over there because I know at least in the media in the UK isn't like 75% owned by Murdoch. It's a bit there's like you know in in Sydney we only have two major metro papers and they kind of blurred into one you can't really tell the difference between the two anymore back in back when I was at uni you could tell which one was on the left which one was on the right now they're sort of like blurred and it's like oh, okay maybe they're almost the same um and uh, whereas in the UK in London at least you've got like five major metro papers and some in every single region so I feel like there's a bit more this diversity in ownership I'm not not yeah, necessarily diversity in terms like of newsrooms yeah and perspectives I feel like yeah 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 but even that i feel like was a, bit, was a very naive thing to i didn't really think critically further until i sort of spent a bit of time working here and i'm like oh okay I can, my name is working against me mm -hmm. so you know like even though i tell people i'm australian and stuff like that i just at the end of the day the moment that when they see my name the dynamic completely changed so, always yeah. yeah 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 always yeah yeah so even if I, even when I meet people, especially this happened when I was in Star Observer, and I think I touched on it in um in the introduction in my book. When I was editor at Star Observer, I, sometimes when I went to queer community queer community events uh, as the face of Star Observer, I always felt like there was there was this yeah, like implicit insidious expectation for me to sort of whitewash myself in some way. Uh, because I am like white passing. If people ever guess where I'm from, they'll almost always uh always guess I'm Greek or Italian or somewhere from the Mediterranean. Very close, but no cigar. But uh, the, but then the moment I tell them I'm Pal Lebanese or Palestinian, it's like they just can't 
comprehend that those two identities, me being gay and Arab, just seem to be able to work together and me being open about it and the editor of a national publication, just, just you can just you can see some sometimes in their their Does faces. They're trying to compute it in their mind. They're like and it's, it's just like, like just, you're watching the formulas being yeah, created yeah, in their yeah. heads and they're like we can't solve these equations exactly yeah the story is about you <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, you yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and i guess the, and the flip side was you know even though it's in increased spaces there was like you know i could be australian and gay but keep the arab side hidden and when I get, the flip stuff when I go to Arab spaces, because um, I was also the board member of Arab Australia, the Arab Australian Council. Even though the board and the CEO, they were very progressive. They they they're open. They let me. They were inclusive. They knew I was open again. We talked about uh, doing queer stuff in the community a lot. Whenever I went to other events as a board member, I was like, mm, you know, do I you know, just say I'm an Arab person, hide the sexuality side? You know, it's like, don't know who you're dealing with who might be homophobic or might be transphobic, or they might say, I don't mean to be homophobic, but, but then they'll say something homophobic afterwards, you know. Um, Great way yeah. to start a sentence, always. <laughs> yeah, so there's that double-edged sword, I guess, um, but when you're, in, when you're at that intersection and you're, like, comfortable being at that intersection and you've found ways to live be harmon be live in harmony with it and be proud of it because they're just such, they're both such integral parts of who you are it's not like you can pick and choose and then when you meet other people who just don't understand how that can be possible it's like well why do we have to explain ourselves all the time why do we have to constantly prove ourselves and you know prove our dignity and don't get me started when i tell some people that i'm palestinian and gay at the same time oh that's just God. like a whole yeah. nother shit buckery that comes over because palestinian alone is like just too much for so many people yeah 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 especially on twitter i get it all the time the moment i mention palestine and gay in tweets no matter what the concept those two words are in the same tweet there's always that nasty little troll that comes in or try being gay and Gaza, see how they like it, be thrown mm -hmm. off the rooftop, or, you know, would your community rooftop. support like, you? I'm like, um, like, I've got a lot of Palestinian straight friends. What are you trying to tell me here, you know? <laughs> That's so true, Nadia. It's always the same method. It's like, you can't yeah. even, like, be creative. It's, never, like, it's just a rooftop. Yeah, it's like, it's like, you know, be creative, be original. <laughs> like, you know, we get this all the time. You think, like, cool and we want to sort of like you know give you give you like a small rose or a little lollipop you could congratulate you on yeah, your like, attempt at great one. You, like... yeah <laughs> congratulations yeah. you sound like a bot yeah <laughs> oh my god yeah i mean so you have created this incredible anthology that's been it's groundbreaking i mean like and it includes several of our past um podcast guests we were so excited to see it um and it's called this arab is queer do you want to talk about like how did you how did this get started yeah how did you kind of decide yeah yeah, yeah. and how yeah how this came about 2019 i guess was when it really when i start first started having ideas i think 2019 was that year when an, an, like a series of really great anthologies came out that year so you probably heard of um, Our Women on the Ground by Zahra Hankir. It's the anthology of our female journals. That was really good. There was The Good Immigrant, which is the UK and US edition. They, they were both really good. And there was one in the UK. I'm not sure if it ever came out in America. Called it's Not About the Birth, an anthology of um, Muslim women writing about their experiences. It was all in response to when Boris Johnson made this really awful remark in, in media about um, 
Muslim women apparently wearing leather boxes and stuff. And then this anthology came out in response to that. And it was really great. It was a diverse set of Muslim women, not just ours, but from like a lot of Desi women as well, African women, um, and Converse as well, just talking about their life as Muslim women, just to break down a lot of stereotypes and stuff. Um, so there's those. And I also just happened to be part of an anthology myself that was published in Australia called Arab Australian Other. And um, my chapter in that was called uh, Coming Out Palestinians, which just sort of deals with the whole me dealing with the shame of being Palestinian, how I overcame that, and that then that came out the coming out journey after that. Um, so I guess having all that, going through all that, and then being involved in an anthology myself just sort of started getting my started getting me thinking, like, what if I could do something like this as well? Um, I've always wanted to publish a book, and I felt like this could be this could be a good first step. And uh, and also, given my background as an editor and how I had experience in dealing with contributors and, you know, I know how to approach people and work with them, um, I just felt like I could definitely do it. I mean, and I start kind of second-guessing myself, like, okay, you're just getting ahead of yourself, calm, you're fine, you know, you, you, don't, you don't know anything about publishing. And I just, but then the more I thought about what I was talking about my experience when I was a star observer, how I just felt like I had to whitewash myself in queer spaces or how when I was on, on, on the dating scene, when I, was a, when I was single, mostly in Sydney, never really happened when I moved to London, I was always fetishized and was always being reduced to this, like, object rather than people thinking about me my brain what i can do and uh and also when i was dealing with the homophobia and our, our community itself and um and in fact i just i've read a, a lot of uh fiction work by arab authors queer arab authors um actually all that sort of came into one ahead ahead in, uh, basically just before uh, the pandemic i was like i think i can do this and i started talking about it with my husband and then the first lockdown happened in, in the UK in March 2020. So he and I were both in our tiny little flat. Probably spent a bit too much time with each other by then. Because we're both working from home, not really, no social life, we couldn't go anywhere. Probably about two weeks or maybe a month into the first lockdown, with that, that first lockdown, that was three months. Uh, I was talking about it and my husband was like, just, just sit down and write the proposal already. And it was like, that was the final push that I needed. And then I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I just actually just sat down and started writing the proposal. And um, as I, when I started writing the proposal, I, was like, I started thinking about who I could, could potentially contribute to the book. So I got uh, the, my trusty notes app on my phone. I started writing some names, um, uh, just trawling through my Twitter a little bit, just see who, who I follow, who's queer and Arab and open about it, and going through Instagram to see who might be open writer, creative activist, um, that, that didn't have to be writers. My little list of 10 sort of grew to 20 people. And then I sort of got some feedback from, I sent a draft of my proposal to one of the co-editors of Arab Australian Other, uh, Randa Abdelfatta. If you don't know who she is, you look her up. She's an amazing writer, author, she's a great uh, role model for Palestinians in Australia as well. She sort of went through my proposal and gave me some feedback. And then then I went to find an agent and the agent sort of shopped it around. So basically from the process of, the process of writing the proposal took about a month and a half, two months. It, then the, when lockdown ended, that's when I started sort of being a bit more active and finding a, an agent. And so, so this day, March 2020, I started writing the proposal. I got an agent August that year. And then Saki came, my publisher picked it up uh, the following summer in um, uh, July next year. So almost almost a year later. And as soon as Saki picked it up, that was like, it was like I was like, hit, hit the ground running. I had, they did not give me time. So they gave me time to just celebrate a little bit. It was like, okay, here's that fortune writers now. We, we want to publish it down. We wanted to get as much, give them as much time possible to write their chapters. 
Yeah, so uh, when, when Saki picked it up, um, my list of 10, 20 people grew suddenly to 50 people because all of a sudden in that, in this, in that year when I was waiting for, looking for an agent, waiting for the agent to shop around, finding some people, um, finding a publisher, I was suddenly finding people pop up on my social media. I'm like, oh, I forgot about that person. Got to add them to the list. Or come up, some people come up on my Instagram and suggest, suggest to follow because you've got so many neutrals. I wonder why they have neutrals. Oh, they're probably queer and out as well. So I'm like, oh, okay. They're a creative person. I'm going to add them to my list as well. And to be fair, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I did go on the queer hours website at some point to see your list to see all your guests to see who you've interviewed, potentially. Yay, who I love it. <laughs> um, and it turns out the names that I had were already on my list anyway. So, oh, well, I'm the same, we're on the same wavelength. Awesome. <laughs> um, um, Makes so, me feel yeah. like I should start, uh, like, start a list of like an index of people just so we can list them list their episodes next to the name just to make them easier to find yeah 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 yeah, yeah. 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 we're a little late <laughs> yeah the episodes you put out and then you tell the queer the, 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 the yeah we should we should we should make it easier to navigate you know um anyway yeah, <laughs> yeah. uh, rolling yeah. for a while yeah. <laughs> um so yeah and then and then, I, and then I started approaching the people on my list, um, just email, did like an email invite to all of them. Um, I think I ended up inviting about 45, between 40 and 50 people. I don't know the number off the top of my head. Uh, could you got to understand I was working full time as well, so I kind of had to manage that. I couldn't really do an open invite, um, open call. And then, yeah, then I'll, most of them were really happy to be part of it. Some of them couldn't commit because of work commitments or, you know, the personal reasons, and that's perfectly fine. Yeah, then like when I signed the contract with Saki in July 2020, 2021, and the book came out in June 2020 in the UK. So it was like less than a year. So, but yeah, it was it was a really intense winter. And I'm glad the whole editing process happened in winter because I would, would have been extremely hard to motivate myself to do it in summer, the only few two or three months of the year when it's really warm in the UK. Um, <laughs> um, so it, it, it give, the fact it was cold outside gave me a reason to be indoors to do this. Um, and there was there was also another two other lockdowns over winter, so I had no no social life. I had even more reason to be doing it indoors. I wonder. I always wonder how different the book would have turned out if we didn't have lockdowns and how I would, would have had to manage all the editing while also juggling a social life because um, I am a social person. So mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. <laughs> First off, thank you for putting this anthology together, and also please thank your husband for us. For like <laughs> supporting you through this and like giving you that push because I will, this, I will, I will. Yeah, this book is so needed. Um, Nadia went, as you know, I mean, you met Nadia at the read, was it a reading? Is, it, is that the right description? Book signing, interview. Book signing, okay. Yeah, book launch event, I guess, would you call it? This year. Yeah, yeah it, was a, it was a US launch event because the, the book had just come out in the US that week. And it was just, yeah, we, we were just talking about the book and stuff. And it was the first time I had been into an event, an event where Muna was involved in it in person. So, yeah. Oh, so cool. What? Okay. Well, yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about like responses you've gotten to the book um, just from various demographics? Yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm, I've been, it's, it's been five months since the book came out in the UK. Oh, basically, literally a month since it came out in the US. And I've been blown away by how. Um, how positive the response has been. Um, it's been really humbling as well. 
Um, I've had some people slide into my DM, slide into my DM, DM me, and uh, just really explain, you know, just how much the book means to them and how they feel seen and stuff. It's, it's been really, really positive, and just, it's just, and just going to events like in New York, and and shortly after New York, I have to come back to London really quickly after that for an event for the London Literature Festival. And just I, in both events, I just I met so many queer Arabs in New York and in London, just and they just while I was signing the book or and just chatting to people after the event, how just how much it meant to them to have that visibility. Um, and these, not all, these these people, they're not necessarily always openly open about it, but they just I guess it just offered them a bit of um, a bit of hope that you know there is a bright future. Yeah, and, I, and I, that was really really humbling. I'm, it's not that kind of those kind of responses from the community itself is probably means the most to me, and um, it's not it's not something I'll ever take for granted. And even just early, just as, as recent as uh, two nights ago, um, I was in Liverpool up north in the, in the UK for an event up there uh, as part of the the local queer culture festival called Homotopia. And the, the event that I was doing it with uh, was, was co-organised um, by the Liverpool Arab Arts Festival. And the moderator, Laura, she, she's Palestinian herself, she was um, the creative director of Liverpool Arab Arts Festival. And it just so happened to be that me, Laura, and two other panelists, uh, Anbara and Madian, we all happened to be Palestinian, and we all happened to be. Well, Laura was a, a heterosexual, but she was an ally. But um, we just all happened to be like, queer Palestinians on an all Palestinian panel with a Palestinian moderator. It was like that's never happened before. I don't think this is pretty. This is pretty special. And after that event, like you know, I was just talking to some people, and one guy came up to me. Um, he was just saying, look, I want to say thank you so much for that. It really gave me a sense of uh, really good to be seen and to sort of have some of my feelings and thoughts and my experiences come to life on this day because I've, I've never really had that. I'm like, oh, that's really nice. Really, and he goes, yeah, I'm just Saudi and he's from Saudi Arabia and stuff. And it meant so much to him to have this visibility. I'm like, of course. Cool. And he can I give you a hug? I'm like, of course I can give you a hug. I'm a very, very touchy. Uh, me, I think I've always touched people and whatever. So I was like, and that's just like really, really sweet and I was like that was just but then the other the other great positive response for me has been just the response from um the heterosexual mainstream Arab community. It's been great. <laughs> um and I and it's purely anecdotal, but like I'm just using that as like firepower for anyone who comes to me, oh the Arab community is homophobic. Yeah. yeah. There are homophobes in our community, yeah. But the people who come forward and say they've loved the book, they're supportive of it, they've given me great reviews and they're really happy with it and they've helped promote the book as well. It's like, well, that kind of goes against that stereotype that all Arabs are homophobes, you know? Um, I mean, you always brace for that worst response from the from your community. It's just like, all right, I've put this queer thing into the world and it's Arab and you're just like, all right, um, bring the hate mail, bring the threats and you yeah. wait and they're not showing up anymore it's kind of great yeah yeah so i mean if, if there are homophobes you're right they're not showing up they're just probably not wasting their energy um which is great we don't want to deal with them anyway mm -hmm. um uh so, but, then, but then again the people who had been in our community who had been coming forward to show support for the book like no i mean maybe it's just the kind of the people i associate myself with that they all come from progressive uh mindset they're, they're all progressive people so they were nor they were going to be inclined naturally to be supportive of the book anyway. Um, uh, so I guess that's why I said before it's purely anecdotal just for me. I, I don't want people to think that this is the you know the pure evidence for everything that expects to spend everything um, because we do have to acknowledge there is homophobia in our community. We can't sort of sugarcoat that. Um, 
So, uh, and transphobia, let's not forget that. Mm-hmm. Um, and biphobia, everything, misogyny, the patriarchy just was fucked it up in so many offsides. Shouldn't be, probably shouldn't be swearing. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're not monetized, you can swear all you want. Yeah. We <laughs> Wait, have some, a minimum some... of 10 fucks every episode. <laughs> <laughs> because you know, from when you when you grew up in Western Sydney in a working class background, you can take the, you can't you can take me out of the Bougainville, but you can't take the Bogan out of me. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, that, that's been really really humbling, uh, surprising uh, in a good way to see all the uh, positive responses from the wider Arab community, mostly in the diaspora, of course, but even people back home in in Palestine, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, come forward. Sometimes they've messaged me privately because they can't really be open about it on social media and, you know, for, depending on where they live. Um, it's just been really, really lovely to see that. And um, it just it just sort of gives me more hope than I had before that, you know, there is, we can definitely, you know, move forward to, for a better future if we all come together. And, so, and it just, yeah, uh, that's been great. I mean, from the from everyone else, the white white western community and stuff i mean i mean they've been they've all been supportive i mean i can't expect that um i guess the most important one was from the community from our community and also specifically the queer Island community it's been really great i'll say i i was um surprised reading the book like how much it meant to me to uh see all those stories together because i mean being involved in this podcast and being involved in some other groups it's not like i was totally lacking any queer swana representation or connection in my life um but there is something about like physical books that i don't think we've been able to like have that much representation in um i mean you mentioned social media i think a lot of us have been relying on social media to connect to people we relate to um and and there's something about just being able to like open you know a a book with with paper and (laughs) and ink um and I don't know, there was something that resonated a little bit differently about that. Um, and also the format of an anthology of having all those stories uh, side by side together and having not that much like explicitly in relation to each other necessarily, right? Like there's so many different stories, so many different ways of writing people all over, but but uh, I don't know, to have those in one place at least gave some imagination of a global community, which was really beautiful yeah I've, I've been getting that sort of uh uh feedback about the book as well how it's just so different all the stories and i purposely wanted that um even though when i approached the when i you know approached the writers to, to uh to talk about to invite them to be part of the book and to talk to them about the book i never explicitly told any one of them that i want you to write that i want you to write about this i want you to write about that like i sort of specifically said to them like imagine the microphone is yours or yours and you're just you're just writing for yourself. Don't worry about the audience. Don't worry about you know having to feel like you've got to meet the expectations of the white gaze or to meet the expectations of what you expect people to tell you to write about. So that's just a, that's a very convoluted way of saying something. <laughs> um, uh, that was yeah. that was really clear. Like you you could tell that people were just kind of doing what they wanted, and that was great. I love that about it. Yeah, yeah, and. It's like what I was saying um, at the book launch in New York. Like, you know, why can't we just share stories where we, just, where we can just be? Like, why do we have to be like, why do we have to, why is it that our, our stories only matter whenever there's something in the media and people want to get our response for something? Why can't we take the first step and just share our stories? Because, you know, white people get that all the time. Like, why can't we yeah. do that, right? You know, I mean, why can't we're we just... Th- we're thirsty for this. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And I think, and I just, yeah, that's not where it's not like curated by someone who's just trying to like tokenize some um, people involved. Yeah, and I didn't want stories that were just you know, trauma after trauma after trauma. I, I just, and I, even though I never really said explicitly in, in my invites to the contributors, like I just in the back of my mind, I'm like, I just you know, did not want a book full of trauma poems. But that's what people would expect of us, right? Mm -hmm. So, and although this is what, uh, although if people want to share some traumatic events in their life, that's, you know, all power to them. They have every right to, but don't always constantly expect that of us. You know, why can't we just share stories of joy? Why can't we share stories of sex? Why can't we share stories of, you know, being angry at our parents and being the bratty child? Like, why can't we just be normal people and our sexuality just happens to be a side piece? You know what I mean? It just has to be the front and center. Um, so I guess, yeah, and I guess that, that also comes through from when I was a Star Observer, how um, like I felt like every time we did stories about the multicultural, the diverse part of the queer community in Australia, where, no matter like regardless of the city, it kind of almost felt like I was on the verge of tokenizing that community. And I was like, I just, I, even now I look back and I'm like, did I tokenize? I, mean, I, I was young and dumb, I guess. I was very naive. I'm still learning unle and unlearning as well some of the stuff that I internalized back then. Um, and I just hope that this book kind of is like a part of that evolution. And uh, and one thing I did, I just did not want to intervene with the writers so much. You know, they all have their distinct writing style. They all have their distinct voices, their unique experiences. And the fact that they trusted me to be able to submit these stories and trust me to be able to edit these their work for them. And could you also got to remember, I've never met most of these writers. <laughs> um, before I approached them. I mean, I had met Muna briefly once. I had met um, Salim once briefly when he had a UK book launch. I met Amu once briefly as well, because he lived, he lived in London before he moved to LA. Um, and that was it, I think. And, and Tanya Safi back in Sydney, I met her uh, back in Sydney as well. But all the others, I just was in contact with them. We'd probably chat, probably chat a bit on social media. Some of them I'd never chat to at all before and I approached them out of the blue. Um, so the fact that they sort of all suddenly had this trust in me to sort of edit their work is like a huge uh, privilege. And it's not something, it's probably the big thing that I just do not take for granted ever. And it was always at the forefront of my mind when I was editing their works. It's like, okay, don't intervene too much. And I just had to, that was on that time when I sort of had to take off my journalist hat and put on my editor's hat or publishing hat because they're two very different things. In journalism, it's more cutthroat, more quick, wham, bam, thank you, man. You don't really get much of that one-on-one -on -one back and forth uh, interaction. Whereas with this book, I had to be really a lot more sensitive to their writing, um, especially when some of the stuff that they, they wrote is so personal and they've never shared it before. Um, so, you know, some of the writers needed a bit of extra time because some of the stuff the, that were, they were sharing was a bit triggering, was triggering some memories for them. Um, you know, and I completely understand that. And I did, I, even though they had never shown me their draft before I saw it first, and I got this admission, I'm like, oh, now I understand why they need the time. Um, so, you know, we've interacted with several of the writers in this anthology, and I know, like, from conversations with several, that these authors are very careful about who they present their stories to. And I think that speaks to, you know, who you are and just like, you know, the care that you put into the proposal. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just really refreshing. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And um, I also, oh, sorry. I just want to also relate to the fact that I think I had some internalized stuff going on when I, you know, 
like I'm just speaking for myself when this podcast first started I had to figure out okay where's the balance between like tokenizing and then also like trying to represent a wide you know range of demographics and kind of honor the diversity of the Swana region and that's a it's it's hard to kind of um get rid of like even internalized you know stuff. I mean we're we're just people we're weird and yeah. messy and inconsistent so it's okay yeah yeah exactly like why why well, you're exactly right Ellie. like I feel like we need to create space for our community to make mistakes and to be to be a mess and to be, to be a hot mess you know why why is it that we're never giving that uh privilege you know and I just kind of hope people kind of start that discussion at the very least I'm not expecting it to be the torchbearer or anything um so I just yeah and uh yeah exactly because I, I feel like um another reason why this book kind of I mean even when I was putting this book together like I I had, a bit, I had that double-edged sword moment I guess when I'm like am I pigeonholing these writers even more as the queer Arab writer rather than just the writer or just the activist you know because no one wants to be pigeonholed. No one wants to be regarded as the that that thing. That's all. You know, the people the, the people want to be known for more than just their sexuality, more than just the nationality. You know, and I was very very uh, conscious about that. Um, and even now today, I don't know if I've achieved that. Um, maybe I'm just being too hard on myself. I don't know. But I, I think uh, you are because like you can't know how well this is going to go over until like 20 years from now when you're looking back because yeah, yeah. a lot of the, like right now, let's be honest, like queer, queer Arabs as a group are having our moment, you know, in at least in the English speaking world where we're out in the sun and we're like putting out our works and we're getting recognition, but like we won't know what the real impact is till like 20 years down the line or yeah. even 10 years, and even, even though like. Yeah. Even though, like, um, for, you know, terminally online people like myself, yeah. uh, you know, six months is basically an eternity. Yeah, even four and a half years, or no, how long has it been? Three and a half years since we started the yeah. podcast. Like, I can't believe how much has changed. How much has changed, And yeah. how much I can look back when we started and be like, what was I thinking? Um, you know, certain episodes we had to take down because um, we didn't know. We, we didn't know what, like, factors to look for in guests yeah. it, just, it goes back to what i was saying like, you know we need yeah. to give us we need to give space to make mistakes and learn from them because you know we're not we're, we're the people we are today not gonna be the same, we're not gonna be the same people in five ten years time um so i mean i do kind of hope that i haven't tokenized and i don't think i have i'm just i'm probably just being way too critical of myself because you know as the same girl, the biggest <laughs> <is> yourself. <laughs> um uh, and I and I feel like if if I were tokenizing them, these these contributors would not have come on board with it. Um, exactly. So I was very conscious to be yeah. Exactly. I would be I was very conscious would... to be sensitive about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you would um, you would hear about it if if anyone felt that way. I think people would give that feedback, and it's telling yeah. that then, that hasn't happened. The other the other side of the coin or the or the edge of the sword, whatever. My idioms all over the place today. Um, uh, it's like you know, am I representing the the region well enough? Um, because I didn't want to fall into that trap of making it very you know Egypt centric because they have the cultural capital of the Arab world, the music and films and everything. I didn't want to fall into that trap. But at the same time, it was it could have I could have easily fallen into the trap of being Shami centric because so much of diaspora is Lebanese or Jordanian or Syrian or Palestinian. Um, 
so I just very conscious of making sure I've got some voices from other parts of the Arab world. Um, but I, I don't know if I've represented that well enough, but I've come to terms with the fact that I would never have been able to represent that perfectly anyway. 18 chapters is way too small for that. Mm -hmm. um, I would have needed at least 50 chapters to get a proper nuanced representation. But then again, it, that, that, that really, that almost views onto the tokenized and making sure you get one person from a different region. You don't, you don't want to do that, you know? You need to, these stories need to have meaning. It's more about their stories, not so much about where they're from. Um, I mean, the, I mean, the, the main criticism I've had so far um, is the fact that I haven't, uh, there, there are no voices in there from North Africa, from the Maghreb, from Tunisia, Algeria, or Morocco. Um, and I would love to have a voice in there, don't get me wrong. But the two downsides, the two things that work against me is that a lot of uh, the queer community from those countries, uh, they speak French before English, so it was, uh, that was a bit of a downside. Um, and also, a lot of people from these three countries don't necessarily identify as Arab, even though they speak Arabic, that Amazigh is their identity, not Arab. So that's I did not want to sort of impose something on that on those on that community, but you know that you know because um, parent Arabism isn't really a thing anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I, I totally yeah. get that. Yeah, for better or worse. Yeah. I think it's also important just to remember that like this book is part of a picture, whether it's in like somebody's career or whether in like the trajectory of queer Arab representation, it doesn't have to be, it's not the whole picture, right? And it shouldn't be yeah. expected to be. Right, um, right. Yeah, 100%. It, it shouldn't all, yeah, like it doesn't all fall on you as one person, you know? Yeah, and I, yeah, I, yeah. I totally understand there's something in marketing where you're like marketing something around an identity and then there's a lot of pressure about being all encompassing about it and it's sticky but I, I think like whatever right, right like whatever the the marketing or the label has to say I think people just need to understand that um any piece of art any book any podcast is is shows part of a picture because any person can only show part of a picture they can't show yeah yeah i agree i just i do yeah yeah i do hope that people who read the book come away with it thinking this is just the start of a discussion i don't want people to think that this is the penultimate but not, not right. penultimate, the ultimate the singular representation of the queer Arab community and that's it. we get we can go home now no that's not it it's only the start if, if more books like this come afterwards then that's great that means my job is done like i want i want more stories more work yeah. come out uh come out after this um I don't want people to think this is the this is this is it that's it you know it's so easy for people from outside of that community to think oh that this is the singular representation of nah, that's not it that's, we're so much more diverse than that this is just one yeah. of many you know? uh, yeah we um i think it, danny it was danny ramadan who i think said like people expected him to write one book about Syrian refugees and that's it and yeah. he was like and people were like oh you're done you've already covered that and he's like there are more than one story yeah 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 I mean I as tempted as it is as tempting as it is to say congratulations we've solved homophobia and refugee problems from Syria one book excellent Oh, that reminds me of the debate when Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister of the UK. Everyone's like, oh, yes, we have a deadly Prime Minister. Racism is over in the UK. And I'm like, <laughs> um, he's richer than the royal family. He still benefits from colonialism. It's still not that straightforward, you know. Yeah. <laughs> still a Tory, still a right-wing, you know, nut job. But anyway, that's another discussion for another time. <laughs> I mean, yeah, why bring in such a downer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh. 
Toxic positivity, uh, yay. <laughs> <laughs> um, going back to what you said about um, language and uh, this being like an English anthology, um, in the book launch, you were talking about this a little bit, um, how you had been contemplating what other languages you might want to translate this anthology into, and then also what kind of complications would arise with that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I would love this book, uh, first and foremost, to be translated into Arabic. Full stop. I would, that would be my dream. But the complications around that is that uh, it would put me and all the 18 writers at potential, uh, I don't want to say harm, but a potential, make them potential targets for authorities in many countries across the region because um, it's illegal. It's, it's, just, it's, uh, most, it's mostly colonial relic, but it's still enforced. Um, and, and not only that, you know, especially if they're writing from within the country where they live, or if they're living in the diaspora, they might be banned from entering that country. So you just, I don't want to, I don't ever want to put uh, the contributors in that, uh, that risk, uh, uh, awful position. Um, and, also, and not only that, like, even if, even if it weren't, uh, even if we somehow we wake up tomorrow and homosexuality and everything, sodomy laws or whatever, penal codes are suddenly being abolished from the statutes across the Middle East and North Africa. Um, there's still the issue of stigma and there's still the issue of, you know, rampant uh, persecution and discrimination that, because there's no protection. Um, so, you know, these publishers, they, I mean, I, I, I can't think of one Arabic language publisher, and I would love to be proven wrong. If any of your listeners, if you know of anyone, if I'm ever proven wrong, please, I'll put my hand up and accept it. But I don't know of any single Arab language publisher that would accept a book about queer issues and yeah. publish it in the Arab language and distribute it in the in in the homeland, right? Because um, the censorship yeah. is so rife, and it's just like there's all this fear of backlash from the community and from readers and authorities. So. Um, I would love to publish it in Arabic. Don't give me that's just me. And if, if we if I ever do get the chance to translate into Arabic, I would have to liaise with each of the contributors to make sure they're okay with it before we can go there. Because if I do put the book together, it's not just about me. It's a it's the whole project, and the the contributors helped me get to it, and I need to, and they deserve to have a say. Um, and I will follow whatever the consensus is at the end. Who knows? Maybe in fifty years' time, in our lifetime, you know. The homelands will be suddenly be more progressive than they are today, and they'll accept this book as a translation for the first time. Mm-hmm. Who knows when I'm like on, I'm in my nursing home, like it's translated, I'll be like the best thing to see the world out with, you know? Who knows? Um, it's got to, ha- I, I do hold on to that hope, uh, whether it happened before then or after, I'm not sure. Um, that's important to remember. There's like, there really is no rush with any of this, yeah, and it's not going to be an overnight thing, it's going to take time. Yeah. At the same time, like, you know, there might be like a small independent publisher and uh, Arabic language publisher that I've never heard of that would miraculously take this on and translate it. And then maybe all my fears of getting backlash from authorities are just like unfounded. I just, just don't know. But there's still that risk, and that risk is very, very big. So, I mean, even for me, like, even though, you know, I, I mean, one, I don't have the right of return in Palestine, obviously, but. Uh, if I wanted to visit Lebanon, like who knows, I, even the Lebanese government isn't really known to ban people from entering the country. Like I might, the Egyptian government might decide I might be allowed in because Sisi is the kind of person who would do that. He, he, you know, always, you just don't know. I've got to, sometimes I've got to fly to Australia and fly via Qatar or Dubai to get to Australia to change planes. Like I just don't know what's going to happen if 
yeah, I'm I'm thinking way too far ahead. Obviously, yeah, I mean, no, I it's, it's it. a fair yeah. it's a fair concern. I mean, it's an incredibly small risk, but the consequences are disproportionately huge. Exactly. If, yeah. If one one wrong person gets a hold of some information or whatever, I mean, it can or you're snowball. in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, um, I mean, we just yeah. And we saw the backlash that happened across the um the region over summer like there was that big crackdown on pride events in lebanon over summer there was the um the big uh every time disney put out a movie there was like one three seconds of same sex kissing or something and then all of a sudden the whole movie is banned over those three seconds across the Khalij, across in egypt and it's like what the hell you got just three seconds like why are people up in arms about it and it's never even like, it's like explicit quote unquote <laughs> It's, exactly. always... it's just kissing yeah. a peck on the lips God. like come yeah. on like um yeah I just, I just feel like uh that kind of like just it, that's in the back of my mind as well like it like like you're saying earlier if this book gets in the wrong hand it could quickly snowball into something right and um yeah yeah there was I mean, um, I, I, yeah. oh the, someone uh i won't name him just in case uh but he was like so bbc Arabic reached out to us a, a while back and asked, you know, can I interview someone you know about your podcast? And he went through the interview and then he realized, wait, this is an Arabic. And he realized like the whole new domino effect of, you know, like here are the additional people who might uh, have yeah. access to that interview. And he decided, you know, it's just like too risky. He's super open in English and just like in Arabic, it felt like a whole different level yeah. yeah i think also like yeah. the arabic language isn't very inclusive for our community like the language itself it's a very gendered language they've got the binary and it doesn't i i, I mean look i don't i don't speak arabic fluently obviously and i know that i know there's discussion about that within the community itself in different arab countries about how to make the language more inclusive for non-binary trans people or um even the queer, uh, the queer community in general even that, even some some communities might may have taken ownership of the of the particular word that would have been derogatory, um, but then some other parts of the community just don't use that word at all. They use something else, you know. So it's like the it's like the f word in the English language. How a lot of a lot of the gay men have taken ownership of that, um, and it doesn't really mean anything anymore. But in the, I feel like the Arabic speaking community, they're, they're still having that discussion and um, at different stages, and um, I realize i'm speaking over them i don't i do not want to speak over the community at all but no it's, it's not my place but we do have to bear in mind that the arabic language whether whether or not it is a gendered language unfortunately and i think that uh even some of the words when it translate if i translate this book into english how we're going to translate some of these expressions into arabic without making it sound wrong you know um yeah yeah i mean i think uh, well, not us in particular, but our co-hosts kind of ran into similar things when we were doing Arabic language episodes, um, including that ambiguity of people not knowing if this was a higher risk situation. Because like, look, this is all public and there's people in every country that speak English that can translate something. And right, like it's not like technically one of them is totally safe and the other one is totally dangerous. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. just like, the, the, the different probabilities of putting something out there in English versus yeah. in Arabic. Um, our co-hosts who yeah. are running the Arabic episodes just like had a lot more uh, friction in getting people to um, like consistently uh, want to record 
or also even people who like wanted to like like the, the Arabic side was like very listened to, but not as like uh, publicly like liked and commented on and all those things that are like validating when you're making. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, yeah. but we kept getting feedback after being like, bring the Arabic episodes back. So clearly people were listening to them. They just couldn't yeah. react. And the numbers like, were yeah. high. So yeah. Right. I, I think. Yeah. And by the way, this is a separate person from the BBC person just, but yeah. yeah. But they were. <laughs> I mean, all they do. <laughs> It just like it was a whole different level of conversation with like potential guests. Yeah, and Arabic yeah. is such a complex yeah. language. Like there's so much poetry because it's so it's so easy to misinterpret something out of context. I mean, you know English anyway, but in Arabic is so much about it is about context. If you don't know the context, it, when you translate things, it might sound a bit weird. Oh, and so the other thing, uh, the other languages, of course, I would like to translate to get back to your question now, there's Spanish and French. I think I said that at the launch as well. Um, Spanish is naturally because uh, there's a huge Arab diaspora in La across Latin America, and I would love to get this book in their hands. And also French because there's a big um, uh, queer community of uh, Arab community in Francophone countries, namely France and Canada, and even Africa. We all know there's a big um, uh, Lebanese community in so many African countries because of um, colonialism. But still, it's another discussion for another time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. yeah. how often can we get through an episode without mentioning colonialism anyway? <laughs> no, not Very right. And then I guess lastly, like, um, how did you approach editing the anthology considering how personal the pieces were and, you know, the varying writing style? Like, how did you kind of navigate that? Um, I, I just sort of touched a bit, a bit, a little bit on it before because going, I had to sort of switch hats. So going from a journalist editor hat to a publishing editor hat was one thing, was a, bit, was a massive learning curve for me. Um, I, it's not something I was really given a, a heads up about. I did not see it coming at all. It wasn't until I got my first piece in, I was like, oh, okay, hang on a second. I can't, this, I'm not writing this for a newspaper. I don't have to sort of adapt their, adapt this piece to meet a style guide. There's no style guide. There's a publishing style guide, but that style guide is different. It's not about the style of their writing. It's about the grammar more than anything. Um, so it was just, yeah, I just realized, I just sort of switched those hats and just realized, it was a, it was much more of a long elongated process. Whereas in journalism, it's like they submit something, I edit it and publish it straight away. More often than not, you don't you don't show them a preview before it gets published because of deadlines. Whereas with this, I had to look long deadline processes, and it was like it was a different way of working. And it was definitely, it was a good learning curve. I'm really glad I went through that because now it makes now it seems like journalism so easy compared to it. Um, yeah, and I think that was that was one way. Of, I guess the main thing I had to sort of navigate was that learning curve of which has between journalism and uh publishing um and i guess i was always on the forefront of my mind to be sensitive with their writing um because i they you know they're putting their heart on their sleeves here they're putting their heart in a piece of paper um you know the last thing you want to do is be that kind of editor that stamps all over you know you don't want to it's not not you don't do that um so the, the directions I gave people were sort of directions to sort of help elevate some stuff, some aspects of their uh, chapters, um, or just to clarify some bits that I just didn't quite under get at the first go. Um, I was never to say, okay, can you just completely rewrite this? This is, this is how I want you to write. It was never about how I wanted them to write it. It was more about, you know, nudging them in the direction that they're going to make sure it's the best it can be. And 
I think I think that's uh, that's probably the best way to approach these sorts of things, and that helped make sure each of the chapters was so unique and different. Yeah, I think it's a it's a fine line when you're editing things that are so like creative and personal. Like I always think, like I don't want to make your piece into my piece. I want to help you make it into your piece, right? Like I want to help you say what you want to say, how exactly, you yeah, without turning it into a different. Yeah. Exactly, and, and, and that, I think that was the, uh, part of the whole switching hat. Within journalism, so much of the editing, it's not so much about like, I'm editing this to make it my piece, it's more about I'm editing this piece to make it X, Y, Z, the name of the newspaper's piece, right? Whereas with this book, I was editing it, but there, I'm, I'm, although there's a publisher behind it, I'm not editing it for the publisher, I'm not editing it for me, I'm just making sure these these chapters can have, can have a life of their own, um, rather than have a life with this masthead over it. You know, in the shadow of the masthead, stepping out that there's no shadow at all. They're in their own spotlight. Wow, I'm being very metaphorical today. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so you're, you're right. That's exactly right, Nadia. It was like, you know, I just did not want to insert myself too much. Um, and you constantly have to sort of double double guess uh, everything I did. I'm like, is this, is this me or am I being, am I actually giving them constructive criticism? Because um, it's very easy to let my ego get in the way without if you don't think hard um and uh think hard if i don't, if i don't think about it and um and it was always in the but i could constantly was very conscious of not letting my ego get in the way um I, i'd like to think it worked out yeah yeah it sounds like you know you really respected like the substance and maintain and keeping in all of the substance um that the writers were choosing to share um so yeah so everyone i got my copy of this arab is queer on bookshop.org elias do you have any other like recommendations for where people can find it or you know anything you want to mention uh find your local independent bookshop find your local queer bookstore feminist bookstore um they will almost always stock it um if not get them to order it in um i know some uh I know that in America, I know Barnes and Noble sell it as well. Um, I don't know Barnes and Noble's reputation in America, but I do know Amazon's a bit dodge, so I'm not going to necessarily recommend Amazon. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but by all means, please, I'd much rather people support their local independent bookstores and queer bookstores. Um, they deserve our support more than the chains. Um, but I mean, of course, if you. If, Depends on people's access, what they have yeah, access however to. However, you can get it. Do yeah. you know if it's hit libraries yet? Uh, I would assume so. Um, yeah, I, hopefully, a, yeah, yeah. Look I at. Mean, that's a good question. Your, I never, I never thought of that. Look at libraries um, too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know it's in some UK libraries. Um, that's awesome. And I know, yeah, I, I would assume that yeah. is like a, a given. That's just um, one thing that came to mind. Like when we started this episode, I was just thinking, like, imagine me. I was just imagining myself as like a teenager walking to, I, w I used to go to the library all the time and just imagining myself coming across this book, that would have been like life changing. And Says so, this yeah, it, it would have been like, life changing no, for me as well. Could... <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, I'm not I'm, yet. If, <laughs> <laughs> just seen, if, I, if I had seen this book when I was a confused 15, 16 I know, I'd be like, I'd be like, I don't know, do I pass by this or like very discreetly borrow this? <laughs> How does this book know? Yeah. I mean, I'd be like, this isn't yeah, me, yeah. but I'm going to borrow it. And I don't know why. <laughs> okay. 
slight side story. One of my like clearest memories of like being in Barnes and Noble is being next to the queer book section, which by the way, is almost as, which at the time was like not even as big as my desk is right now. And standing next to it, looking at all the women's study stuff and be like, and trying to feign interest in feminism. I was trying very intensely to read all the titles on the, on the queer books. Yeah. <laughs> no, no disrespect. It's like, okay, like being, being really interested in the women's studies section wasn't also suspect. <laughs> Yeah, it was that's more, pretty up there. It, it was more acceptable in 1997 to be interested in women's studies and feminism than anything queer. Of course, yeah. <laughs> that was code. Yeah, this is reminding me when I was 19. It was right before I kind of came to terms with who I was. I walked through the library and I saw the L word on DVD. And I was like, I borrowed them, watched them. And I, you know, I was kind of like, oh, that's, I wonder why I'm so interested in this. <laughs> But yeah. I hope yeah. adults who are also not queer at all walk by this book and feel very interested in it. And they're just like, why does this resonate so much? <laughs> but also, like, um, I just hope it just sends a message. And I guess the title, yeah. in some ways, is like a, I mean, I, probably just too, this might sound egotistical, but I feel like I hope the title, in some ways, is a form of protest. It's like, you know, yeah, it's a form it of is. protest to the Arab community that we exist and, you know, we're taking, we're, yeah. you know, we're taking a stand. We can't. You can't. You can't. You can do fuck. You can't do fuck all right. about that. We're here. We're here. We're, we've always been here. But at the same time, yeah. it's sort of protest to the white cis het um, or cisgender queer community mm -hmm. who constantly whitewash us. Who constantly present themselves as this diverse community. But it's just like, well, where are the non-white people in your community? You know. Um, and it's just like saying an F you to them, saying, okay, we we might not be white, but we're queer as well. So it's like a double blunted, you know um thing uh yeah so i do hope it in some ways it kind of shows what people had that moment when they see the book it's like oh because i think one of the things that i struggled with when I was, through my coming out journey that i just did not see myself in all the imagery and the pop culture references of the queer community in australia or even the stuff that's coming out of america um i just did not see myself i could not relate to any of the gay men that i was thinking it's all white gay men i'm like what is that got to do with me you know, so I just hope this book kind of sort of reaches out to uh, members in our community and just realize, you know, there is a space for you, there's a community out there for you. We all have messy lives. <laughs> um, we're all human beings at the end. So we think we all do what we want. We're all just getting it along. Our and, you know, books scare people. Books scare many communities and scare like the right wing, you know, some, some of the radical right wing folks. And it's like, there's a reason books scare people because they are powerful they're extremely yeah um, and they stick around now, yeah especially now apparently um there's that whole campaign across the states about um the the tea critical, party banning critical people. race theory and, yeah yeah and yeah. it's now reached dearborn now the evangelical have got the support oh of muslim and christian leaders in dearborn now God, um, I hadn't heard of that. I'm not surprised. Yeah, Mona was telling me about it on the day of the launch. I, I had no idea. It had, it had happened that day. There was a story in The Guardian. I think there was a story in USA Today as well about Dearborn community. When I say community, this is what pisses me off about Western media. When they talk about community leaders, they go to the sheikh or the priest. I'm like, they're not community leaders. They're just religious leaders. Like, come on, guys. Go with like, why, do, why, why is our religion so tied to how it... Uh, fuck. Anyways, I mean, on, on the upside, yeah, we have these extremely conservative um, 
Republicans in America reaching out to an immigrant community. Yeah. Progress. Like, they're, they're, like, <laughs> I said this on another episode. It's like different people from different walks of life come together to suck. You know, it's like diversity. Aw, so <laughs> sweet. <laughs> Joining <Yeah>. hands. <laughs> but I heard this book is available in Dibon some way, given what, what Dibon I hope so, to. too. Um, any um, listeners in Dearborn, maybe try to, like... Yeah. I do know that out of American music based yeah, in Dearborn is fairly progressive. Like, they've had some um, queer Arab authors in their book awards they do every year, so... Yeah, they're they're awesome lately. I don't know exactly if that's always been the case, but like they like we did a promotional partnership with them. I have a lot I know a lot of people who are like presenting there right now. I might be presenting something there next year. Yeah, yeah it, it's like a very queer place as of Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. There's a few um uh queer ad based in Dearborn at the moment who got got their own community going, which is great and I just hope that um um, you know, they, they do, they just get, they, I mean, they're obviously not letting the news get to their head. It's all very new. Um, I feel like it's a small minority. I don't know why we're talking about Dearborn so much all of a sudden. Um, no, I, but it's, uh, no, it's, it's, a, it's important. We, have because, a lot of, we do yeah. have a lot of listeners in Dearborn. Exactly. Actually, actually yeah. anyone in Dearborn listening, you should start, you know, if you if you feel safe and comfortable doing this, start requesting the book at your libraries. And maybe if, they get a bunch of requests. They'll get a bunch of copies. Maybe yeah. something to try. If they can, if they want to read it without having to, if they don't have access to a library or if they want to buy the book themselves, you can download it online as well if they want that extra safety of not being seen visibly with the cover. Oh, that's um, a good idea. Yeah, good point. Yeah, you can download it for your Kindle or your iPad. Um, my publisher has like an actual an option to download download it digitally. Um, uh, uh, you can download it from Amazon as well, but as I, as I said before, I'm not going to recommend Amazon. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, do what you have to do, but you know, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not I mean, yeah. Kindle for some. I mean, I use a Kindle myself because I live in a tiny London apartment. I don't right. have enough. Yeah. Shit, you know. Yeah. Um, but one day I'll have my own library, and I can sort of keep. Jeff Bezos down the gutter, but that's another guy. I get it. I live in a Soon. 500 square foot place, so it's like gotta be selective with you know, what's <laughs> what's in here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. Um, anyway, do you have a presence online that anyone can follow you? You know, social media platforms. You want? Yeah, to sure. Um, I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter. Well. Okay. Who knows, by the time you air this episode, Twitter <laughs> might not be existing yeah, we'll anymore. See. <laughs> <laughs> um, God. But I, it's just uh, at Ilias underscore Jashan. Um, okay. So E-L-I-A-S, which commonly pronounces Elias in English, which I do not go by at all. Um, I kind of blame my mum, but at the same time, I'm blessing in disguise. Um, that's, that's a funny story there. But um, uh, and Jashan is uh, J-A-H-S-H-A-N. Um, yeah. Awesome. And of course, this this link and others will be included. This link and others, including that's the book uh, store page, will be included on our website. Yes. Along with this episode. Yeah. Thank you all so cool. much for listening and check out the book like now. Um, I am. I was just reading it right before, like continuing to read it right before we started recording, and it was hard to like 
I was like, oh shit, it's time. And I had to close it. I didn't want to close the book. <laughs> this um, is why we put everything on the Google Calendar. I know. I was like, oh my God, this is a, I'm like, um, anyway, so that is, um, yeah, that is a must for everyone listening. And um, you can follow us at the Queer Arabs on um, Instagram, maybe Twitter, we'll see, and Facebook. And our website is thequeerarabs.com. Mm-hmm.